Hey guys, welcome to episode number 28 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. Today's guest is going to be Jonas Tawiadodu, who is the owner and head coach of Speedworks, which is a, a sprint training group based out of Lee Valley in the northeast of London. For those not in the know, Jonas is the coach of the current UK 100 meter champion, CJ Uja, who recently ran uh, sub 10 seconds, 9.96. I believe he was the latest uh, British guy to do so. And Jonas tells me he's got another couple on his books that should hopefully start breaking that 10 second barrier too. In this episode, we talk about his transition from being an athlete at school to becoming a coach and how he used the final year project of his master's degree to establish a relationship with Dan Paff, who many of you will know is one of the all-time great track and field coaches. He was responsible for several of those gold medals which Team GB won at the 2012 Olympics. And he continues to be Greg Rutherford's coach to this day and uh, has had a part to play in all of those titles that he's won since London. We also talk about how he used those experiences to become the owner and head coach of Speedworks, which, uh, in my opinion, is uh, you know definitely up there in the in the British Isles as the, the top sprint group. He says Europe. Um, maybe I'll have to take his word for it because he's the expert. We also talked about stuff like horizontal versus vertical force in uh, maximizing sprint speed. Where does he lie in that debate? Talking about stuff like exercise selection, how how general, how specific, and when during the athlete's career. Also talked a little bit about learning styles and and coaching styles. When is it appropriate to use one approach or the other with your athletes? And also just a little bit of detail about the process of developing world-class speed and and what it's like to be a Speedworks athlete. And remember, if you like this information, we offer a ton like it inside the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is a private members group where each month we share webinar presentations from elite level strength and conditioning coaches on topics that matter in the real world. We've had NFL guys, we've had professional rugby, professional soccer, a host of different sports and a wide variety of different topics that you're going to draw on in your career as a professional strength and conditioning coach. Not only that, you're also going to get access to an exclusive members forum where you can discuss a range of different topics that interest you. You can share resources, ask questions, and also if you're a developing coach, you're going to be able to take advantage of the experience, knowledge, and advice of more established members to help you progress your career. If you would like to try that, go to rugbystrengthcoach.com slash members and at the checkout, enter the word trial. And that is going to allow you to try the website for 24 hours at the cost of just one pound. If you like it, keep it. If you don't, cancel it. No problem. No strings attached. Uh, but for now, enjoy this episode of the podcast with Jonas Tawiadodu and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Jonas, how's it going? Hey, how are you doing? Um, excellent. Um You've been an extremely difficult guy to track down. I think this has been in, in the pipeline for about six months, right? Yeah, maybe a bit longer, actually, but yeah, for sure. So for people who've not heard of you before, can you kind of introduce yourself to them and, and let you know, let them know who you are and, and what you do as a coach? Okay. Um, I'm Jonas Tawi Adodu. Uh, that's how you pronounce my name, just for, for people that are not sure. Um, I'm a speed coach by trade, and, and people call me a speed coach, but... You know, a lot of my time is spent uh, conditioning and preparing and, and, and teaching movement to a variety of athletes, be it um, professional rugby and football guys, to um, my speed group, who are all sprinters, uh, hurdlers and multi-eventers based at Lee Valley. And I heard that you actually started as a rugby guy, is that right? Yes, yes. I played rugby 
from school up to university. By the time I got to Hartbury, I've broken. Um, but at the time, uh, I had opportunities to coach the, the Hartbury team. And um, the ladies, I actually was a quite of the head coach for the ladies rugby team and um, just gave me loads of experience learning about team sports um, prior to my focus on individual sports. So were you, were you a track and field guy as well growing up or was it strictly rugby for you? Oh, I threw javelin in the shot put um, and did the sprints, but I wasn't really good over 100. You know, I'd get to 60 metres and, my, and my, my legs would fall off. Um, but I always loved speed power. Um, when I played, I was either a flank or a centre, so it kind of just shows that was kind of my gift. Um, and I had shit ankles, so I could run really well in a straight direction um, and would take ages decelerating before I could change direction, so I normally got hammered. But um, I was a a big boy who could accelerate so that that gave me my my niche in the game so so what prompted that move to track and field for you um well i was doing my master's thesis and um kind of went through all the research for rugby and i was trying to look at elite coaching decision making in just in in coaching at the at the time um but a lot of the rugby research snowballed backwards only to like the 1990s or late 80s and and all of the the references were going to track and field world um, and so I, I figured I needed to know about more about track and field so I, I kind of read everything I could and and that was a lot it took me about six months and I, and I found down path through my reading and my through my searching online um, and then I realized this guy um, was doing what I was told wasn't possible and we was always told you couldn't be a jack of all trades as a coach you must focus on one um, but actually it seems like um, Dan is an expert in, in nearly all elements. Um, and that, that made me curious because how can, how can this person be an expert in all these areas? But really what it was is he had a great heuristic um, platform which he made decisions from. And it, and it was basically a summary of all of the information he had read and learned um, from the theory, but more importantly from practitioners. What he, you know, what he had learned from great SNC coaches, great um, movement psychologists, great, uh, you know, therapists and surgeons. And he, he had a way of summarising all of that, plus all the information he had gathered through other coaching programmes um, into some simple rules of thumb. So that became my focus is looking at experts and elites and, and, um, and my understanding or my, my perception is if you can spend, you know, 50 weeks uh, manipulating all the training variables to the point where you peak an athlete um, to run what is actually not natural for the human body to run that fast. You know, 11, 11 and a half, 12 meters per second is crazy. Um, for, you know, four high and five hertz is crazy for for people to move their limbs that fast. Um, if you can peak all your variables to get them ready to do that at a specific date, then after that, team sports was going to be easy. So that that was my perception, and I figured I'm better off spending another um, four to five years um, focusing on track and field before I try to go into the rugby world. And of course, you know, with, with track and field, it's a stopwatch sport. You get a very quick feedback about whether something works or not you know in, in team sports there's often a lot of places that an snc coach can hide yes exactly and and in, in team sports there's only such a place you know there's speed is important but you know the, the game is more than just speed of movement it's also um reading and planning before you actually execute and 
and uh, many many you said SNC can hide a lot of players can hide by not being as fast or as fit or as agile because they make up for it through their other skill sets. So for sure, yeah. So how did you eventually come to work with with Dan Path? Um, I hounded him forever to the point where he um, he said, uh, basically, come over and, and do an internship. So I spent three months over there, used that as the time to collect data for my, my research, because basically my, my master's thesis was on him. He was my case study. And then, um, luckily enough, a year and a half later, he was employed by uh, British Athletics to to basically lead the, the program towards the Olympics. And uh, he was employed in my backyard, near enough in London, and um, there was an apprentice role going. So I think I was a natural fit. It made sense. And um, then, I, then I had another three and a half years of hounding, hounding him a bit more. So that, that was a three and a half year position, that apprenticeship? Yes, exactly. And um, what athletes were you working with in, in the lead up to those games? Oh, in the lead up to the games, I started with um, some young kids. Um, and then over time, uh, broken athletes ran faster and um, not so talented athletes uh, performed well. And by by natural course of things, you attract better athletes um, or more um, more talented, more raw, who are performing at a high level. Um, so I went from having some athletes that wouldn't make our national final to, to athletes that were, were winning the juniors, um, being international juniors and Paralympic athletes that ended up uh, meddling at the Worlds and Olympics. Um, in, in addition to that, I, I supported Dan with some of his group, uh, specifically his 400 and 400 hurdler, uh, Reese Williams and uh, Rob Tobin. So it was a really good opportunity to coach those guys, look after my programme, but also watch Dan on a daily basis with the likes of Greg Rutherford and Dwayne Chambers and um, Christian Malcolm and a whole heap of others, Goldie Sayers. He, he had a large range of different event groups um, that he was coaching off of one template. Um, and that was very, very interesting because it, it wasn't about uh, variety in um, in the, pr- the program design. The program worked, I guess, holistically by just making sure each component was trained specifically to the way that athlete needed it. So everyone would accelerate on a specific day, but um, it would be more, uh, I guess, suited and um, specific to your event demands and your skill sets. So that was very interesting to see. And were there any major lessons or changes that you made to yourself as a coach under those three years with Dan? Um, Yeah, my major lesson was probably um, development of my coaching eye um, and a a deeper understanding of anatomy and physiology and and more specifically just how the body works and... um, soft tissue treatment and trackside treatment or trackside activation to um, to to put the the system in a in its best state needed to um, optimize movement and power output and all of that it's, you know I'm quite interested about that that trackside therapy and, and trackside activation stuff how how does it work is it your guys are going to go out and warm up they'll maybe do a rep or two and you'll you'll have a look at them and decide, okay, you know, this athlete needs X, the other athlete needs Y, and then you go to work on it? Yeah, and I think um, before we look at it being treatment and hands-on, it's just about looking at the, the athlete as they turn up. Um, how 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 do they report to you firstly? 
Are they dancing from a previous session? Have they been sitting at a table for six hours doing re, um, revision or exams? Um, or, you know, are they fresh and ready to go? Um, and then through their own process of warming up, doing self-mobilization, doing, um, you know, like just basically getting warm, then they will have an opportunity to see the therapist. And if we've got, if we've got ambers and reds that we know on a daily basis need to get their pelvis checked, need to make sure their ankles and their feet are in the right position, um, or need to make sure they have some manual support to add thoracic mobility, um, then that, that might be something they go and do because they know that that's their process. Others, um, who generally don't need a lot of hands-on treatment can manage it themselves and have their own routine to go through to manage it themselves. Um, be it um, very static, uh, one joint, one limb, one um, one muscle group type activation to something far more dynamic, um, more about single leg hopping, multi-directional, maybe with a rotation. You know, whatever it is that the 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 team therapist SNC team has has come up with is with uh, have come up with to maximise that person's preparation for the day. So I, I I don't think trackside and your warm up and and the lessons I've learned are purely about what you're doing on the table. A great osteopath can maximise someone's um, ability to perform for sure. But I, I'm also really um, strong about the athletes understanding how they can do go through that process by themselves. Yeah. And, you know, do you have contingencies built into the program as well? So when you get those ambers and reds showing up, do you have a set idea in your head of what you're going to do to modify that program? Or is it more, you're always going to try and look first towards what can you do prior to the session or at the beginning of the session to account for those ambers and reds? Yeah. So, I mean, um, it's, it's, it's always about what can we do in preparation for sure. Um, because it's not generally, it's not the first time we've seen an amber or a red um, do a speed session, and and that's a big deal for me. Is that a lot of this preparation um, we we generally have two to three osteopaths um, and soft tissue therapists and physios, you know, a combination of of those different skill sets, but m- more importantly, just therapists at the at the track during a speed day, and the athletes know that preparation for that day is important. Um, so they're a bit more, even a bit more aware of what they're doing. Um, sometimes they have specific therapists they like to go to more than others because they know they'll do certain things that they want um, or need a bit better. Um, but yeah, there's contingencies for art for, you know, you get a guy gets on the table um, or he's doing his drill, A skip, B skip, he's doing some strides, you see some imbalances, one one ground contact is longer than the other or they're pushing out the back further than the other um, or they can't rotate so much to one side to the other and you know we're looking for imbalances we're looking for changes in that person's norm um, and when we see those changes it, it asks us you know we have to ask a, a question of can we change those things now can we return them back to what is norm now with with activation or trackside treatment um, if we can or we can't, um, that will determine if we're going to do a session A, B or C. And, and essentially, the sessions vary from being very, very intense um, to being um, essentially on a bike, but trying to hit the same kind of energy system. Um, and I think that is, is really important because we write a plan and we say, this is a speed day, 100%, this is another speed day, 80%, and here's a, 
energy system day, for example. And we expect our athlete or every one of our athletes to turn up on that day being able to hit those intensities because we've written it in a plan when it's rarely that case. You have 10 people turn up and they're all in different places, even though they've all had the same stimulus or we think they've all had the same stimulus. So, yeah, having different options for each session, really, really critical for me. And are you... Um... Do you kind of subscribe to that Charlie Francis idea of you may have X reps planned for a session, but if it's obvious that you've already got what you wanted from the session, you're going to pull them back. And also if, if it, if it's just not happening today, you're going to pull them back as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely, I don't know if that that's Charlie's, Charlie's thing. I think it's just a, uh, a smart coach who's, you know, emotionally intelligent who can sense that maybe today's not that day. I mean, conversely, you may plan for a medium day. So some of my guys on a on the first day of the week, if they accelerate, they can find really good coordination, really um, run fast, and uh, and they've had a good session. Others may do the same session, but the next day would have a better day. Yeah. So those individuals, um, they may go. Uh, you know, if, if if you see Charlie's fingers being a high low, high low, they may go moderate high for example. Yeah. Um, and so those guys, you know, you'll, you'll set some reps on that, especially on that second day, on that high day. Yeah, for sure. They're, they're probably going to be minimal um, because they're going to turn up there. They're going to turn up hot, ready to go. Um, as opposed to that other person, maybe because of Monday's intensity, even if it was just moderate, may turn up on a Tuesday and be um, bits and pieces. Do you, do you try and get all of your guys in the same template throughout the week or you know, have you got yeah. some guys that, you know, Monday's Logist- a Monday. For logistics, uh, I do feel like writing the same template for everybody makes sense. You know, yeah. there's, there's more than 20 athletes um, on each day training. Um, but having variations in session um, and relative intensity means that um, you can uh, give people a bit more of an individual stimulus or a more appropriate stimulus for each individual. Mm. Now, just kind of switching focus and, and thinking about sprint biomechanics. You know, I've, I've written on my blog about the, the trip that I made out to um, to Arsenal when you were there to, to see you present and also to come visit you at Lee Valley. And one mm. of the big things that I've you know revised my opinion about is uh, horizontal versus vertical uh, force production in relation to sprint speed. Okay. And, you know, I'd, I'd done, I think it was about three years ago, did nearly a week with Michael Yesis and he's adamant that it's, it's horizontal force. You have to minimize braking force and, and maximize propulsive force. And, you know, pretty much any vertical force that isn't dedicated to just keeping your posture upright is yeah. wasted energy because it doesn't propel you down the track. But okay. then seeing you and, and Paul Bryce speak, he said, well, actually, if you look at the data, it, there's a much stronger correlation between um, vertical force production and sprint speed. And if you look at the, the stance phase, it's within that first 50% of the duration of the stance phase that is is most closely tied to sprint speed. And if you look at the joint angles associated with that, it has to be vertical force production, not horizontal. Yeah. So what's, what is your response to people like um, JB Marin, for example? Because he's in that other camp. Ah, this, so this is where the mistake is. Okay, JB, and so if you if you think JB is one camp who's horizontal and Wayand and and, and maybe um Ralph Manor and another camp which is vertical, mm. um, no, I think they're in the same camp. They're just describing two different phases of the run. Okay, JB 
JB, and they're describing it in, with two different perspectives. JB is talking really about acceleration. That's his main, a lot of his thought process behind everything being horizontal or maximizing horizontal is about acceleration because you have the amount of time on the ground um, to have those front side distances and to um, and you have opportunity to be to have minimal air times which essentially set you up to go forwards. So JB is talking about acceleration where Ralph is talking about or, or way end or the school of vertical is talking about max V where if you reverse reverse and um, engineer what you just mentioned, you're producing high forces um, in the first half of your ground contact. Um, and the, the amount of forces you're producing in that short amount of time can't come from concentric um, muscle activity. Yeah. Only elastic muscle activity can produce those forces in those short amounts of time. Um, so when we talk about elastic activity, we talk about what well, elastic structures, hamstring, calf, um, you know the, the tenderness structures of the posterior chain enable you to do just that. So if you talk about that, you talk about okay, what are the attractors for maximum velocity, and what positions are people getting in? Um, and essentially, you have to have enough airtime to and enough front side airtime to create enough pretension to hit the ground um, or to accelerate the foot down to the ground. Um, in a short amount of time. Um, so we're talking about enough time. There needs to be just the right amount of time upright in, in uh, air time, just the amount of air time to reposition your limbs to do that. Um, so then that starts to describe what our maximum velocity attractors and, and techniques should look like just based on knowing what you want to do. Whereas acceleration is opposite. And, and continuing acceleration. Um, so that, that view, that first view of frontside mechanics and, and short ground contact and, and, and elastic running, um, it's really more about upright running and, and maximum yeah. speed. Whereas JB's really talking about horizontal. And when JB's research, when you see the word technique, yeah. and I spoke to him the other day, and it's quite interesting. When you see the word technique, he is not looking at video. He's not, when he talks about technique, he's not talking about limb positions or anything to do with what you may see or what kinematics and kinetics will be describing. He is talking about horizontal momentum and every step continuing that horizontal momentum and, and that acceleration is about an exponential increase in, ex, in, um, in horizontal momentum and that the best, the fastest sprinters produce that horizontal momentum per stride um, they accelerate every stride up to 50, 60, 70 meters, and then they maintain. So when he talks about someone having positive technique, he is talking about them for that stride, continuing to accelerate themselves rather than decelerate. Got you. And that's a really important um, distinction to make. And and I think not too long ago, Wei and, um, and, and, and their school put out a, uh, a review of one of JB's papers um, and basically to squash people's argument of the fact that um, they're in two different schools because they both agree with each other really openly and really clearly and they're just saying two different things. Um, well, no, they're saying a very similar thing but they're just describing two different parts of a run and, and two different objectives. And the thing that, you know, that swayed me as well hearing you and, and Paul speak as well is the fact that it, it, the, the one word I wrote down again and again and again was balance. 
And like you said, there has to be a balance between force production but time spent on the ground as well. So you yeah. can try and produce force at top speed horizontally and push out the back. But for the amount of extra force you may get, you're spending that much longer on the ground and you're not, you're, you're probably slowing down more. Yes, and not just that, but you are putting yourself in a position where um, maybe a more economic model you would have got off the ground um, 10, 15, 20 milliseconds earlier. Um, and as a result, your, your, your stance leg will now be recovering that much sooner into your airtime. And, and so as a result, you have more time in front of yourself than behind. If you spend a lot of time pushing and your foot ends up fully plantar flex and your knee is fully straight and your, and your knee is really far behind your hip, there's a lot of um, time spent recovering that foot on the backside portion that it robs time from being able to utilize it in the front side. And you're not going to be able to get that scissor action back into the floor in the next stride to minimize exactly. or try and reduce that braking force, right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, another thing that's I think is peculiar to, to the way that Dan Path coaches, and I think that you've used that from him as well, is the idea of this heel-toe action in drills mm. and, and at lower speeds. And, you know, coaches look at that and say, well, hang on, you know, we, we're told that we need to be running on our toes or, or running with a flat foot. What's the rationale behind coaching athletes to do that? What are the benefits? I think there's. I think you start from the, the place of the the wind last or the wind last mechanism in the foot, um, and it's it's the mechanism of when we when we heel strike and walk in. What do we do? We pronate. We we roll in and then we supinate off as we toe off, and um, that 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 mechanism locks the foot in a position where you can create loads of tension and actually supports the activation of the posterior chain. So it's like a timing mechanism. Um, and that timing mechanism, I think, is the important uh, rhythm required for efficient absorption and propulsion uh, on ground contact. That rhythm is what we're coaching. And the timing of when to attack the ground, when to go into more of a plantar, plantar flex position that you may see people um, coaching, is, is a timing that I don't think we should be coaching. I think we should be supporting them to be uh, brave enough to hold themselves in a dorsiflex position for as long as possible and set up that mechanism um, during the ground contact. Now, at faster speeds, for sure, the foot might fire a bit earlier, but it still goes through that rolling action. So it's important that our focus is that rolling action and we're, we're focusing more on cause rather than effect. So it, it's it's almost going to take care of itself at high speed. Exactly, exactly. Now, we had a conversation when I came to visit you about, you know, specialized strength development. And I like the way that you laid it out. Like you said, if you think of it as a spectrum, you know, at one end, you've got like just pure generalized force production, like, for example, yeah. squat, bench, deadlift. And then yeah. at the other end of the spectrum, you've got, you know, sprinting and the competition exercise and, and absolutely nailing technique. Yeah. And you said at the earlier stages of the athletic career, you're just in interested in maximizing either end of that spectrum. And then yeah. only when those two things maybe don't start to yield as much um, improvement in, you know, competition, then you're going to start to work towards the middle of that spectrum. Mm. So what does that, what does that look like? with your guys when you start to move towards that, the middle? 
Well, I think uh, I think the first disclaimer is that I, I think at all points of the year and all points of someone's career, we should be touching on each part of that spectrum. Um, I just think there's a hierarchy um, determined by those those factors, w- w- where in the year, where in someone's career, um, that where some of those factors are things we just touch on and some of the, um, some of them we actually try to extensificate. In, in, in We're trying to grow it, make it better, build capacity specific to that, that component um, and yield the benefits that, that the athlete will get in terms of force, stability, um, reactivity um, and, and specific sports form. And what kind of tools are you using for specialized strength development? So, for example, uh, you know, stuff like sleds, uh, hills, any kind of overspeed work. Are they are they big? Well, I, I think um, in, in my hierarchy and in my pyramid and, and, and kind of uh, how I see the world, you know, I always start from a place of what is acceleration and what is max speed. Um, and for team sports and, and for, for sprinters, because uh, I, I think the, the end point, sprinting, accelerating and running fast, is really um, our measure as S&C coaches. And so I think it's an important component when you're sitting down and looking at a plan to, to look at all of them. And I think what directly correlates to acceleration of things that are like acceleration, so pulling a sled loaded um, or pulling a sled with an emphasis uh, with minimum with moderate load but with an emphasis of frequency on the ground um is something that correlates really well with accelerating well i think things that help resisted running are things like slow ssc jumps um things where the hip is the main contributor to power output um and then well of course squatting deadlifting um Maximum strength, Olympic derivatives are all things that contribute to that component. And likewise, my mindset is the same for maximum velocity. If we're looking at maximum velocity, what are we looking for? Um, Near enough, extremely reactive landings um, where um, the hip is projected and you're trying to do it whilst maintaining horizontal. So the the mindset around it is produce a very quick vertical um, impulse but the goal is to orientate that impulse in a horizontal manner. Um, so I'm going to play around with other things that allow me to do that, running over different hurdles and cones and doing different drills um, that are asking for you to or forcing you to maintain some kind of horizontal, but then at the same time challenging them with um, different contexts that force them to spend no time on the ground whilst doing it. Um, what leads on to that? Well, Short SSC jumps, um, low, lower leg conditioning and low leg plyos. Um, and what links to that? Well, essentially, it's calf strength um, and the ability to produce high forces in the isometric position in the calf hold, um, to me, is a, is a great example of someone's ability to, um, or someone who's prepared to run really fast. So how that applies to um, people on different ends of their spectrum you know, young kids versus older kids. Yeah, for sure. With young kids, get them strong and they'll just run fast. Maximum strength correlates really well with explosive strength at the beginning. So get them strong and they're going to run fast or they're going to be more explosive. Teach them how to move and give them opportunities to run fast in in closed and open scenarios where they can feel what it's like to produce force, the new force they can produce. It feels like to orientate their bodies in different ways. And, you know, you've got a young kid who's, 
who's ready to develop and, and keep going forwards. Um, whereas the older kids, well, yeah, I'm going to definitely want to do more resisted running, maybe in complex with their lifting, maybe in separation. Um, and I'm definitely going to want to give them more opportunities to almost part, whole part the, the, the learning objective of a session. So if they're doing teaching games for understanding or small-sided games or, you know, whatever it is, I would want to break down some of those components and go and train them alongside some sled work or some pliers um, where I now enough activate their bodies to go and then do their task. And, and it's a grey line because at that point they're still in a speed session. So even though success in, a, in rugby or in a football um, scenario would be scoring a goal or getting the ball to where it needs to go to, success on this side of the line is, yes, do that, but did they do it in the way they've been taught? Um, until you do it that way, there isn't a lot of transfer. But for the kids, I feel like just playing the game is enough of a stimulus for them. Uh, and generally, you don't have as much time to, to go across all of the components. Absolutely. And you've kind of touched on what I was going to ask you about next, which is the idea of dynamic uh, systems, learning theory and, and shaping the environment. Are you as mm -hmm. much as possible with your athletes trying to let the learning take care of itself by manipulating their environment? Or do you tend to vary your approach on an athlete by athlete basis? Um, I think, um, like a coward, I kind of sit on the fence of all of, all of the systems theory and, and all of the, um, I guess, what a lot of people are talking about at the moment. I, I think it's very important for the athletes to, to self-learn, to, I think, peer learning within a group is, is um, sometimes more powerful than, than, than them learning from me. Um, and it, it might be through just observation or discussion amongst them. But I, I definitely feel there's a, some days I'm a teacher and I will sit in a classroom and we'll watch video and we will talk about discrete components that we see. If it's the ankle, the foot, if it's to do with the hip, to do with posture, we will talk about them discreetly because it's difficult to watch a video and not direct it. Or it's, it's, it's naive to watch, do video analysis and not direct the athlete towards where you're looking and where you're talking about. Um, so that's important for the athlete to be able to internally understand what positions their limbs should be at. But the, the biggest deal for me in teaching is, is the attractors. It's not about what a limb is particularly doing. It's about how limbs are coordinated together and working, um, I always get the word wrong, but synchronously, you know. It's, it's about them um, finding what that looks like and then I give them a variety of environments to find it. Um, and really my biggest cues are, can you orientate your force in the right direction um, can you produce large amounts of force or even take in the right direction in a minimal amount of time on the ground? Those are really what I'm manipulating and what I'm asking for these guys to, to learn, understand. And we do it resisted, unresisted. We do it under fatigue, not fatigue. We, we, we do it on a variety of surfaces. Um, I sometimes over, uh, you know, with the resistance, sometimes we really overload the resistance and still demand some of those key variables um, and same way with maximum velocity we sometimes overload the requirement for short ground contacts but still maintain the horizontal um, and then you progress that in um, you know like when whatever they're ready for if you make it too heavy and they can't hold a position still it's too heavy 
Um, if you bring in the, the cones too tight and they can't spin or you make them run too hard into the cones and they're carrying too much horizontal and the only way to deal with it is spend long long times on the ground, then you failed in your prescription. Um, but I, I definitely feel there's a combination of different things um, that were different ways of building the environment so that they can learn different things and figure things out. We do it very abstractly and we do it very direct. And I think the combination of two means you can kind of you kind of get everyone's everyone's strength. Some people just need to feel it. Um, some people need to be told directly what it is, why you're doing it, how you're doing it. Some people need an overload of information. Those are the people that are continuously asking you questions. Um, and some people actually, when you cue them or you coach them, even if it's an external cue, sometimes you actually mess up what their bodies can already do and already figure out. So sometimes instead of queuing horizontal, put them on a pulley or put them on something resisted. Um, or sometimes without queuing short contact times, give them a drill that will do it for you. Um, but there's a uh, it's horses for courses and there's a time and a place. Um, and a lot of that variation in being very direct about uh, internal fee- internal feedback and internal queuing comes really in the off-season or in the winter. And gradually over time, they should just get it. And sometimes they will use an internal cue themselves to fix something and that's because they've realised that's what works for them so yeah uh, that's a long spiel to say I'm, I kind of sit on the fence um, yeah. and, I, and I, a lot of the theories of learning um, instead of you know poo-pooing them and saying you know dynamical theory is the only way now it's about saying okay well what works at different phases of learning for sure now just out of curiosity you know I had a conversation with the coach the other day and you, you mentioned those types of athletes. You have the cerebral ones that you always want more information, always ask more questions. And then you have the other athletes that, that don't think about it at all. And you just you put a, full, a few small tweaks in the environment and they've got it. And this mm. coach said to me, he said, I don't want the guys that think about it. He said, because when you're going into uh, a big competition, you don't want someone who's going to overthink it. Have you seen that with your athletes as well, where the guys that you know tend to overthink yeah. don't necessarily place as well? Um, uh, yeah, because you haven't gone through the phases completely. You haven't finished your phases. So everything is stimulate, adapt, stabilize, and actualize. You've, you've gone through the first couple phases, but you haven't taught them how to do the skill without thinking. Because essentially that is the skill, right? Being able to uh, react to your environment very, very quickly and make the right decision. If you're, if you're using a lot of that processing power, thinking about discrete things, um, be it your limbs um, or execution of a movement or just overthinking the task at hand, then, yeah, you're going to be a bad performer. But I think it's the coach's job to finish that process. Break it down into parts, build it back into a whole. Um, break it down and make it very forebrain and very uh, something they think about and then pull it into a place where they can go into flow state and make sense of it. Um, that's that. That's what I, sometimes I think is missing in in just transfer of acceleration and speed in training into competition. Um, and, and I think the same process and the same issue will happen with, with technical, um, technical skills as well. So, you know, you've got guys getting ready for Olympic trials. Hopefully you're going to send some, some guys to Rio. Does that mean that as you start to get to that kind of business end of the season, that your coaching is going to become less technical and less detail orientated and just more managing the program, making sure that, the psychological state of the athletes uh, is where it needs to be. Yeah, exactly. And and you, you've got to be honest with yourself. And some people are getting ready to peak at the Olympics and aim to make finals. And some people are getting ready just to make the team. 
So where people are in in their process, and those people just making a team in two years are the same guys that will be trying to find them. So recognizing that process and, and that um, developmental age uh, and how long you've had that athlete for, you, you may be doing more coaching with those individuals rather than your seasoned vets that are, are ready to rock and roll where you're just giving them reminders. Um, you know, your seasoned vets kind of probably know all the key components they should do. They just need to be reminded to go through their processes, whereas your less um, prepared individual, your, your less experienced individuals may even be forgetting and muddling up their process. And yeah. um, you know, I always say that when the season starts, you know, the first couple races of the year, the sun's out, everyone says it's ready to race. Everyone is ready to race. But many of people aren't. It's just the calendar dictates that you need to be ready. So definitely you need to go through the process of trying to, to summarise and, um, and uh, turning co- conscious thought into more flow state. For sure, that's where that's the biggest goal because the environment, the comp- competitive environment is about to throw at them a whole heap of uh, information that needs to process quickly. Um, but you're still coaching, you're still teaching, you're still waiting for opportunities to plant a seed um, and being smart with what not to say in, in what environment. And that really is all I've learned, I reckon, over the past 10 years is what not to say to different individuals. <laughs> different times in the year I, I, I promise you I, I really only think a lot of the key information you need to know about running fast being explosive staying healthy conditioning athletes a lot of that stuff is there and there's a lot of people that know that stuff and you see them coaching every day but it's the guys that you know I'm watching Dan a thousand times I said Dan but this was wrong why didn't you tell him and sometimes he wouldn't even give me an answer I would just walk away or sometimes he'll give me you know they're not ready for that or you're seeing it wrong um and so that's that's what I watch these great coaches. They they're quiet for half the session, and then one word is extremely powerful and changes the whole the whole dynamic of the rest of the session. And um, I think uh, as coaches, we invest all our time and effort watching video, studying, reading, listening to blogs. So we want to express that information, um, but it's it's figuring out how to best get this individual to do the job. And it may be you saying it. You know, my, my, my group are pretty good now. They've got really good coaching now. Half the time, I, I know I sometimes I go to one or two or three of the other athletes and say, speak to this individual. What, or what do you see in this block start? And they may give me more uh, contextually rich feedback than my um, than just my view, my standpoint on, on what I see. And again, it's just about getting what the right, the right information, the right feedback to that individual at the time. So I think you've, you've, again, touched on another question I was going to ask. Like when I came to visit you, you know, I said you were uh, one of the best sprint groups in the UK. And you said, no, kid, we're, we're the best. Uh, so <laughs> No, I didn't say that. I said maybe in Europe. <laughs> so, you know, without having to be modest at all, what is it that you, you and your guys are doing better than everyone else to make you the best? Um, I don't know if we're doing anything better than anyone else. I just think that, we have a, you know, we have a consistent base of talent. I mean, three of my fastest boys all live within two miles of Lee Valley, and they've all known each other for a while. And you know, I, I see on a daily basis loads of loads of talent in London alone, you know, but not all of it comes through. Um, and I think we just we've got our priorities right. We, we we try to stay healthy. We run fast from day one. 
um, but we get fit and strong at the same time. Um, we recognise that we need to train hard, but we train smart. And we, we recognise, even though we want to accelerate, do speed, do speed endurance, do general endurance, do plyos, strength, max strength, um, eccentrics, we want to do all this stuff, but for different people it has a different effect. So we we load up some people on some things and others we respect their, their, their cycle of healing or their, their level of readiness and, and we move things around. So um, I'm not the boss. I, I am just a caretaker of the program and the athletes are very, very open and are very, very um, involved in the planning process. And, you know, I listen to them. I think that's the biggest thing. I'm not in this for me. It's figuring out what they need. Because, you know, an athlete that moans all the time about not wanting to do a certain session or an athlete that is always early in the beginning of the week but is always late and moaning at the end of the week isn't just moaning. They're, they're, they're telling you something. They're saying your loading is not appropriate or this beginning of the week is appropriate but now the end of the week needs to be low intensity, needs to be about recovery, regeneration. Maybe my microcycle isn't seven days, maybe mine is three days. <laughs> That's maybe what they're saying. Or maybe mine is 10 days. And so the middle of this doesn't, or the end of this week doesn't have to be another intensity session. Maybe I need a bit more time. And so, you know, I don't think we're doing things much different to others. I just have a, a group of quite empowered individuals who love the sport, who want to run fast all the time, but don't want to get hurt, um, have learned from their mistakes, and buy into the process, um, and 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 want to want to go against the norms of of British sprinters, which essentially really good young juniors who don't make it to seniors. That there's been research done on the British sprinters, um, but over the past four to five years, um, the Salu has shown us that we can run sub ten. Adams done it. CJ's done it. There's a whole heap of people behind. Like, hold on, running sub ten isn't just for the Jamaicans and Americans. Like we we can do it too, um, and Dan Dan Paff always said to me, his legacy will not be twenty twelve Olympic Games. His legacy will be the next two to three Olympic cycles, where people have learned from his process um, and they've applied it with without the bias of of general culture and, and generally the way it's being done. There's a new way for it to be done. Um, and I think there's a lot, of, a lot of people. So my group isn't the only one. There's, you know, another two or three groups that are, are, have young coaches that are doing an exponential job with the athletes they've got, and and are being noticed. And um, and I think it's going to continue. And you you touched on America and uh, Jamaica. What is it that they do better than everyone else? Is it a combination of things? Um, I think the Jamaicans don't have other team sports to compete with in terms of talent pool. I think that that is just already a, an amazing thing. That means that you've got more of your gifted athletes in um, in in athletics, whereas some of our best sprinters, the most natural, gifted, nervous system, wired, elastic athletes, um, going to football, going to rugby. Yeah, um, that's what uh, Craig Pickering said to me. He said the guy that beat in the um, the juniors ended up at Chelsea. Exactly, exactly. A lot of the kids that um, I've seen, American and, and American kids specific that I've seen at the World Juniors, World Youth, over the past five or six years, most of them are in NFL. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, firstly, the Jamaicans have that. Um, the Americans have an extremely competitive uh, college system. So do the Jamaicans now, actually. It used to be like a lot of Jamaicans and Caribbeans went over to America. Now a lot of them are staying in Jamaica because their system is now just as competitive. 
Um, so from a very early age, you 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 kind of um, start to get rid of the the guys that break early, break easily, um, and then you end up with the phenomenons at the end who win are winning the champs and running times that will take them to the Olympics as junior athletes. So you have a, a, a big talent pool that is being sifted, all the weaknesses being sifted out, and and you're coming out with the the phenomenons. But in the UK, we can't afford to do that. That's why a lot of our guys haven't done well in the past is because sometimes those weak ones need to be saved, need to be given time. They're not really weak. They're just not ready for their speed. They need to be conditioned. Um, they need to be taught about their sport and then their world class. Um, so their maturation age is maybe generally a few years later than some of these great Americans and Jamaicans. Um, but I, I totally believe that the Brits now um, can rock and roll with these guys. and We haven't got a 9-7 or 9-6 sprinter yet, but... I think that British record over the next two years is probably gone because we've got at least um, three or four individuals that in the next three years could, could go and break that. And that's really, really exciting. Do you think they need to be doing something different or, or pushing the boundaries of what they're doing in training to achieve those numbers? Or is it a, a, a matter of continuing the process and trusting that process? I think it's continuing the process firstly. I think we're always trying to push the boundaries in training. We're always trying to maximise um, rest and recovery from extreme uh, levels of intensity. Um, being in the heat makes it easier. We spent, you know, this year, especially because it's Olympic year, we've been a month in Doha, a month uh, or two to three weeks um, in Phoenix with Altis and Dan and Stu, um, and three weeks in Tenerife. So we're finding times where we can say, OK, well, actually we're going to intensify in these key blocks and we probably want to be in the heat if we want to do a, a good density of, of this intensity. Um, and that's something that, again, the the East Coast or the West Coast, uh, um, no, it's the Southern States in America, the universities in the Southern States, you know, they've got all the heat and all the sun and all of the talent pool um, and uh, clearly Jamaica Jamaica. So having the heat and the sun vitamin d and all the bits that happen with being away from home as well you know having the heat and being away at camps does give you the ability to to run faster so i think if you know the more we do things like that it will help i mean sometimes we can't get away from the uk but if you come to the valley sometimes it's freezing um <laughs> they, they don't want to put the heating on fully because it's a big center and there's only a few athletes but you go to incept over in paris and you walk into the indoor arena and you'll take off your jacket straight away. You'll start sweating. And so they really understand and recognise what the sprinters need to push themselves. And, and I think that that is sometimes understated or underrated by by um, by the powers that be. What, what's it like to be a Speedworks athlete? What does that typical week look like? Speedworks week. Um, so you look at the, the Charlie stuff and you look at, um, some of Dan's models and, and the week, you know, typically in some people's models is high, low, high, low, right? Um, with a high on a Friday and maybe a weekend off. Um, that, that's like the typical Charlie model that everyone's seeing. When you look at Dan's model, you, what you see is, um, with a few different variations for the sprinters, you may see high, um, high, low, high, low, high. Um, but the highs aren't true highs. Um, often, on the weekend, he will use the Friday as an acceleration day to potentiate the speed of the speed endurance on a Saturday. Um, and 
sometimes a Monday is a real high day, it's an acceleration day, but a Wednesday is more of a moderate day. It's got a speed component for sure, but maybe it's more extensification, maybe there's a bit more volume, a bit more rhythm, a bit more teaching being done, no timing gates, no competition. No competition. Um, I think that at the Stu McMillan's current week is a really nice week and it works for some of my guys where Monday is a potentiation day, um, Tuesday is a, the speed day. Um, and, and then Wednesday is a recovery day. Thursday is that moderate day that I said Dan did on a Wednesday. Um, Friday's off. Saturday's a speed endurance day or speed day or a race weekend. Um, that that week format works well. Um, for some people, it works well at some points in the year. And so sometimes we employ that. Um, my week format, the reason I explain that to you is my week format kind of differs depending on what phase we're in um, and where we are doing multiple units so high density of speed work um, the intensity of that speed work isn't always the highest um, if you've ever seen it in my charts I'm, I'm dyslexic so everything's in colors red red on my chart red on my week is a real high intensity week where uh, a real, real high intensity session where there's competition going on um, where there's a, a, a higher risk of injury but also it's, it's a session that we're, you know, it's a real fast session. A pink session is a moderate session. So it may still have a component of acceleration, speed, speed endurance, but it's a moderate option. It's me recognizing that within 48 hours of that session, either before or after, I expect another red. So even though I want to do an element of speed, it's not the highest intensity. Um, and so there are some phases in the year where we have loads of pink in a week, maybe one red. And there are some phases in the year where we have two reds. And if we have two red sessions, it's probably with four or five days in between. Um, and there's probably a pink in the middle or a blue. And blue, to me, is active recovery. So essentially, you've got two high-intensity speed sessions in a week. And, and those sessions generally will combine acceleration and speed, or acceleration, speed, and speed endurance. Um, so a, a typical week for a speedworks athlete at the moment is a competition week because um, competition phase and essentially they have choice of um, different pink sessions or different red sessions and depending on where they are they will choose the, the appropriate one with help from a coach but essentially most of these guys now can figure out what they need on that day so people laugh I turn up sometimes and I ask the athletes what we're doing today and it's like people say but you're the coach the lunatics running the asylum <laughs> so, yeah exactly exactly um but these, these guys get it, and, and you can't do it necessarily with a brand-new athlete, but the, the aim is to educate that brand-new athlete into recognising, you know, that the choices aren't extremely varied. They're either running fast, running with rhythm, or doing re active recovery. And within those components, there, there are variations. If, you're, if there is a short speed, a longer speed, a repeat speed option, there's going to be running on the straights or running on a bent. And depending on your event group or your sport will depend on what option we choose. Um, and then within any, within any option, there's a hard session and easy session. Um, and so these guys, just, they start to get it and they start to make sense of it. And then I just make record of what, what are the choices we've made over time. And I start to realize that some of my guys don't need to run very, very fast very, very often. Because when they do run fast, they run at such, such a high intensity, their bodies need more time. And also, 
It's the reason why they're ready to run fast is because we haven't been running fast. We've been doing other things that have got their bodies, their individual needs addressed, in, in a, and they've learned more and they've made understanding um, of those components better. So when it's time to run fast, they are ready to run fast. So long way of saying there is no typical week, um, apart from the fact that we know when, they, when it, there's an option for a speed session or when everyone's doing a more low-intensity session. And with your guys, are you doing like an AM, PM, or are you doing it all AM or all PM? The logistics state that at home, we generally do it all AM into the PM. So um, one group might start at nine, a second at 10. Typically, if you start at nine, um, you're ready to start your drills, uh, running drills by 9.30 or 9.45. And you do a first session that might last 90 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. You have a break, lunch break, refuel. And then you go in the gym straight away. Um, at a camp, we have more option to train, go and have a nap, refuel, come and lift. Um, and if we're doing a, a race prep type day, a, a major comp prep, uh, we may run in the morning, have a break, run in the afternoon. Um, but it's not, I, I used to do a bit more, I don't as much. Um, what do you do the three days? Yeah, the three days in those in when we run in the morning, run in the evening. We I doubt we will lift. We will yeah. probably use different lifting options. So I lied. We may lift, but we, we may do a, a fifth of a session and do it before um, the first session or before the second one if if the athlete feels they need some activation or some 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 loading or whatever it is. And um, how does it work? Is it is it a private private training group invitation only, or is it? You know, if, if someone turns up ready, willing, and able, um, you, you take them on? Yeah, I think it's a combination. And a lot of it is about coach-athlete ratio. So in my elite group, um, it's made up of mostly athletes that I've coached for a long period of time. Um, and then some that have opted to come to London, have moved there or, or already based in London and, and wanted a coaching change. And um, It's not a private group. The, the athletes pay coaching free, but we, we also have a number of scholarship athletes. Um, and uh, Speedworks has now become a charity for the athletics arm, and, and our biggest goal is to um, to be able to get our athletes just the same services and provision as, as those who are on the national funding, um, but before they're on funding. The funding is a bit short-sighted. It, it waits for you to perform, then it decides to support you, whereas you know we can see who the talented athletes are who may not be ready to perform now, but with 18 months um supervision they can get to the place where they need to um so that's the goal of speedworks at the moment so at the moment that we're at capacity but every year things change we have a multi-events group joining us um next season and and we're really excited about that arm and then this the speed um speed skills is, is something separate that is focused more at the team sport guys and we have a number of the academy level rugby and football guys that train with us regularly and that that up to now has been mostly um, word of mouth and has been people approaching us. Um, but we've we've in, improved and increased our infrastructure. We've got far more um, specialist coaches available now in rugby and football, male and female. And, and this is a service that we're about to start promoting as soon as the, the new website's finished. So, what's, you know, the, that, uh, that's, what's the web address that, for that? Um, web address is now speedworks.training so www.speedworks.training 
Um, and hopefully by the time this comes out, the website's up and people can get all the information on the charity um, and also on the different services we, we offer, which is essentially Speedworks is athletics, um, Speedwise is coach education. Um, we've had you and we've had quite a few different people come to us to, to learn from, uh, from professional coaches down to you know, first year graduates. Um, so that's Speedwise and Speed Skills is, is you know, the service we offer for rugby football cricket we've had a few golfers um it's just more of a specialized service where we we let people get a, a glimpse of what it takes to be an elite athlete and also an opportunity to apply it to their their speciality um so yeah that's some, that's something that's evolving when the website's up you guys take a look um and uh hopefully we'll we'll get some some of your clients hopefully we'll steal some of your clients too <laughs> um has, has the seminar happened yet, or is that coming up? The second seminar is coming on uh, a week on Monday, so 23rd, 24th. Um, we've got quite a few um, interesting people attending. And then we, we plan to have one every month um, up until the Olympics. So May, June, and July, we'll have one, a two-day workshop. Um, and the, the June and July versions will have um, some guest speakers, some of the guys we talked about today. Um, and a few others so that's going to be quite exciting we're just waiting for this first one to go before we start to promote it cool are you going to sell the recordings online um I don't know step into my office brother (laughs) there you go step into my office let's do this okay then fine fine we we got to talk a bit deeper than me okay cool mate thank you very much for that no worries no worries really appreciate it have a nice day okay same to you